0: are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited today. We are talking about a new and emerging drug, fenibut. Many of you have probably encountered this if you do a lot of inpatient detoxes, but I don't encounter this a lot in the outpatient setting, and I don't think you do either, Paula, but it's definitely one that needs to be on your radar because it can have some catastrophic effects. We're going to start out with a case. You have a really interesting one.
1: Yeah, so this is a de-identified case and that I saw in the hospital of a 27-year-old who had a history of substance use disorder with alcohol and benzodiazepines, who had gone to treatment, residential treatment, was successful in treatment afterwards with sobriety from alcohol and benzodiazepines, but then presented back in the hospital in the emergency room, brought in by his sober living companions, basically for obtundation. And he was found to have a low heart rate, relatively low blood pressure, not not very hypotensive and impaired level of consciousness. So he was, he cleared quite quickly, however, and his urine tox screen was negative. Blood alcohol level was negative. His CBC and CMP were otherwise unremarkable. And so the question was, what had he been using and what did he need to be treated for? It turns out that he was experiencing, he endorsed experiencing increasing anxiety while he was going through his intensive outpatient treatment following residential treatment. And while he had been going to the gym every day, he had been introduced by some of his fellow gym goers to a product that was marketed towards muscle recovery, kind of like GH uh, growth hormone in a way, but for muscle recovery and anxiety called Fenibut. He was started to buy it at his gym and take it and found it incredibly rewarding, much like alprazolam, and he increased his use incredibly quickly, started buying it more and more, taking it more and more, and found that if he didn't have it multiple times a day, he would experience really severe withdrawal symptoms that looked a lot like benzodiazepine withdrawal. So we had to admit him to the hospital, and because we were worried about risk of autonomic instability and seizure, and we were also worried about stabilizing his mood, so we were able to admit him to the psychiatric hospital, actually, and help him transition off of this substance, so medically manage his withdrawal symptoms, and then try and help figure out a plan for him moving forward. So we can talk more about how he managed his withdrawal um, as we go through the podcast, and uh, so we don't blow the whole thing in the first two minutes. And then what we recommend for ongoing treatment thereafter.
0: Very interesting. Thank you, Paula. Some of the history. So Fennel, but honestly, I don't think I really even was on my radar or even heard about till just a few years ago. And I don't How? When did you first hear about this, Paula? Was it just patients like this just coming in?
1: Yeah, I heard I heard about it working in the hospital and we had real rush of patients using this substance. I would say I noticed it starting in about 2017. I don't know why that year, but we started seeing a dribble in of designer benzos and then a lot of people using Fenivit. I haven't I agree with you. I didn't really see it in the outpatient setting and since moving from inpatient to outpatient and also to moving to a more vulnerable population, experiencing homelessness, I haven't seen that this substance being used as much in that population as I do in the more affluent middle class and upper class population. Definitely in those folks, we saw it quite a bit.
0: Definitely make sure we're getting good histories and asking about it. So a little bit of the history. So this, this drug is not a new drug developed in Russia. It was quote unquote, called the Russian cosmonaut drug. And it kind of got that name because it was included standard issue in their medical kits, which is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. What does that say about? uh, About being a Russian cosmonaut. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's where it kind of came from. You know, it was first developed in 1959, by a professor, V, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, Percolin. It was quickly recognized as its psychostimulant and anxiety reducing effects. And it still is used medically in Russia. What Fenaba is, it's beta phenyl gamma amabutyric acid, which is a neuropsychotropic drug. It acts on the GABA, primarily GABA. And it's some extent on GABA-A receptors, but it's also stimulating dopamine receptors and antagonizing beta-phenylethylamine. So that's PEA. So that's why it has so many different effects. It's medical effects, so it's used widely in Russia to relieve tension, anxieties, and then they will use it in other disorders characterized by asthenia and depression, as well as in Post traumatic stress, stuttering, and vestibular disorders. And this all comes from an article by Lapine in CNS Drug Review from 2001. Okay, in the US, it is not considered illegal, but it is branded as a dietary supplement or what we call nootropics, which is kind of like these cognitive enhancing supplements. FDA has sent some warning letters to several companies, and there has been CDC warning, particularly that came out, this was around 2015, we've seen, they saw a huge escalation in use, which kind of fits, Paula, when you started seeing that increase in 2017, that they've started to get really on the radar that there's with overdoses and injury and this with this escalating use.
1: It comes as a capsule or a powder most typically, and it's taken orally. So typical supplement, typical dietary supplement, it has a short half-life, relatively short half-life of about five hours, and it doesn't show up on a standard urine tox screen. And patient folks use it multiple times a day, typically. And those who are buying it off the internet, this is where people get it typically in the US, you used to be able to buy it at vitamin stores and even pharmacies or big box stores like Walmart. Now it's been retracted mostly into the online market. And again, like like Darlene said, it's marketed as a nootropic and anxiolytic kind of GABA-like drug. So folks will take it either as a color a powder that they'll mix into some kind of a liquid, typically orange juice, orange juice, or some other drink that facilitates absorption. Um, and it has different effects at different doses. You know, it crosses the blood brain barrier because of the phenyl ring. And at lower doses, I think it says less than a gram, it has effects where you might feel calm, ha- have an increased sense of well being, increased focus. But then as you exceed the dose, and of course, this is all dependent on your tolerance to the drug, you become more sedated and lethargic. And loopy and then sleepy. Think about the effects of baclofen because, as we know, baclofen is a GABA B agonist. So, fenibit is much like baclofen in its activity. So, think about baclofen meets lorazepam or no, not even lorazepam meets alprazolam, that it has these GABA A at higher doses effects and GABA B with a little bit of dopamine mixed in, right? So, it's got some feel good effect kind of muscle relaxant and sedative and anxiolytic effect and as you increase the dose you get all the effects of high dose benzodiazepines so that's those are the effects of the drug and i guess that's why they were using it in russia for as a as a medication right
0: yes and i think it's interesting we've when we were researching this there were several case reports this one has a very quick development of tolerance and people become rapidly dependent on this. And we're talking within a few weeks, which is quicker than we typically see with other sedatives and benzodiazepines, and which was structurally where this is similar. I don't want anyone out there thinking, oh, well, this sounds great. This is something to be extremely concerned about. Just even like this case that Paula presented, very tolerant, very quickly and then their withdrawal is quite protracted and pretty severe.
1: Exactly, and it's you end up getting de- tolerance, I think, after you start taking doses of about two grams a day And so people will quickly escalate their use to overcome that tolerance, just like they do for other substances. And because of the short half-life, as we know, a general principle of addiction medicine is the shorter the half-life of a substance, the more likely it is to be uh, abused because you have this peak effect. It comes on quickly, especially drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier easily. You get quite a rapid effect, an intense effect with Benibit because it is quite potent at the receptor at higher doses especially has high affinity for the GABA-B receptor. And then it drops off really quickly. So you're left with this kind of withdrawal state that then leads people to want to redose So you have multiple redosing effects during the day. And that's why there are some warnings because it's over the counter. There are warnings on some of the websites that sell this drug to say, oh, do not take more than X number of days a week. Do not exceed this dose. And I think this is their kind of over the counter way of saying this is a tricky drug and it sure is and definitely should not be marketed as an over the counter benign medication. Or supplement.
0: Absolutely. This is a really dangerous drug, especially to just be over the counter as a supplement.
1: And I think there have been reports, there's many poison control reports of exposure to this drug in this country. And there have been reports of deaths, including, you know, three deaths recorded, I don't know what year this was, this data is from, but we've got one in eight reported exposures have a major effect of the drug and three deaths. So major health effects of taking fenibit drowsiness, lethargy, agitation, tachycardia, confusion, poison control data. What was the time frame for this poison control data? Donnie? Yeah,
0: so from the CDC, this is when it really became on, I really think on the radar. So from US poison control calls, it, there was a sharp increase around 2015. From 2009 to 2019 was where this article was tracking. The reasons for this increase, they said it's not really truly known. They just said probably part of it was this huge growing popularity among the online retailers. And then that's where they just think we need to really have this just awareness of the dangers of this. Most of the exposures, 65% were the tablets, 24% were the powder And I think that's the problem is you don't know what you're getting. Other names like that, it might be known by Anvifen and Nufen. Most of the time, it's just called Phenibet. That's the most typical. I haven't seen a lot of other street names pop up or heard them. Some of the acute intoxication is Paula described that quite well in her case. Very classic in an acute Case you may see obviously severe drowsiness, the nausea, vomiting, and then really interesting you'll see an eosinophilia, and then the lowered blood pressure, renal impairment, and with chronic use and when you get into those really high doses, which is not hard to do, and a lot of those case reports, especially people using above seven grams, you get to these dangerous overdoses. You get the lethargy, mm-hmm. somnolence, agitation delirium, seizures. Patients are just obtunded, And then we'll get into management. Paula, tell us a little bit about the like, just when you start seeing the dependency and that kind of withdrawal cycle. Very similar to benzodiazepine tolerance and withdrawal.
1: Yeah, tolerance develops easily like we've discussed and withdrawal symptoms will start occur when people stop or reduce their use and they have bound, rebound anxiety rebound insomnia irritability agitation they can have perceptual disturbances so they can feel pins and needles paresthesias they often complain of visual and auditory hallucinations and they can become delirious they can become delirious as well like have uh, appear like they're psychotic it's it's a Looks for all intents and purposes like a messy kind of benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. And for those of you who have seen and treated GHB withdrawal, it's similar to that as well. I would say GHB withdrawal is more significant and severe but i hate to classify them against each other because fenabit withdrawal in the right person can be really significant and you want to take into account when you're assessing someone that you think has fenabit withdrawal who has no or who has known fenabit withdrawal what their history is of withdrawing if they've had a history of complicated withdrawal before from either alcohol or benzodiazepines or other GABA-like drugs you can expect that their withdrawal syndrome is going to be significant. Assess and treat their withdrawal syndrome like you would alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. So get a good history. You want to find out what they were using, how often they were using it, how long they've been using it for, what the approximate dose is. And like Darlene was saying, it's difficult to know what they're actually getting. You might not be able to know the gram amount. This is very similar to kratom use where people just say, I don't know, I'm just making it into a tea and drinking it all day. And you don't know if they're taking 10 grams of kratom or 25. With Fenibit, it's typical to not know if they're taking the powdered form or they might be able to tell you that they're taking X number of capsules a day. want to get a history of their withdrawal symptoms in the past. How quickly does withdrawal start as soon as they stop taking fenibit or if they reduce their use? And how severe are the symptoms and what kind of symptoms do they have? Do they have headache, visual changes, shakes, sweats? Do they get really anxious? Do they start seeing things or hearing things? because that's going to be a predictor for you of how significantly they're going to withdraw Withdraw for you. Uh, you can use the CWAB as a somewhat objective data point for people's severity of withdrawal. And of course, I would always recommend looking at their vital signs, because if you start seeing increasing heart rate and blood pressure, and especially oxygen need or temperature, you know that people are becoming more autonomically unstable, and you need to be much more aggressive with your withdrawal treatment. And then of course, you always want to take into consideration risk factors for a complicated withdrawal. So what's the age of your patient? What are their medical and psychiatric complexities, what else are they withdrawing from? Do they have multiple substances they're withdrawing from? And how have they withdrawn in the past? Like we said, especially do they have a history of seizing or delirium or hallucinosis? And then, you know, you treat it with a GABA-B agonist. So we don't have formal protocols for this because it's a relatively new drug. And as far as I know, you know, there's some case reports. I remember when I was working treating inpatient folks, we just look up case studies and they said, well, try Baclofen since it's a GABA-B agonist and you want to have the same effect to calm down the brain. And that's what uh, I would use is protocol of Baclofen dosing clinically, and this is anecdotally found that it typically wasn't sufficient to treat the withdrawal. So I'd add in, this is in the inpatient setting, of course, add in long-acting benzodiazepines or phenobarbital. So something like chlorodiazepoxide or phenobarb, being very, very cautious using both baclofen and phenobarbital or baclofen and benzodiazepine, because of course you have a synergistic CNS depressant effect when you're using both of those medications. And then use other adjunctive medications to help them with whatever symptoms they're having. So if they need something for sleep or anxiety, but basically you want to target those GABA receptors, both A and B. You can also, I mean, I think we've used a little bit of gabapentin to see if we could iron out the anxiety and sleep, all of these medications being used in the inpatient setting. I wouldn't use those medications in the outpatient setting for risk of everything we've talked about on this podcast before when treating patients in the outpatient setting for alcohol withdrawal, the risk is that they'll continue to take Benevit and also then take the benzos with them or the Baclofen or the Gabapentin. So I would use those medications in the inpatient setting.
0: I think that is great. Very messy and complicated. I mean, it is really challenging, but it's like you said, Paula, their withdrawal can be quite profound. And I wonder sometimes these complicated, like, sedative withdrawals that we've encountered in the past, we may have been dealing with this and not known it. For those of out there that are encountering patients in the emergency room, I think it's number one, this does not show up on our urine drug screens. And so that's really challenging, not in our standard urine drug screens. In your overdose situations, which this does happen, there have been several lethal overdoses This is managed in those acute cases. You're going to use your activated charcoal and gastric lavage, but treat seizures. If you're getting seizures, treat obviously your typical ABCs protecting your airway, treating agitation. So I think that covers the acute treatment. And anything else? What else did we miss on this?
1: Well, for the outpatient setting, if you have a patient who is you know, maybe not using, doesn't have severe tolerance, is just getting wrapped up in this and feels like they can back away from it and you can support them in the outpatient, I would do the same things. I would assess their history and their risk of you know, complex withdrawal needing inpatient management, but you could see if they were good candidates for outpatient management and see if you could safely use medication like Baclofen or gabapentin, but I'd say baclofen would be safer in the outpatient setting if they were reliable, if they had someone with them, if they would follow up with you frequently and give them very short amount prescriptions of baclofen, like two or three days at a time and have them follow up and see how they do. And then of course, focusing on long-term treatment because medically managed withdrawal detox is not treatment. It's just getting people off of the substance. So addressing the underlying problem of the use disorder and that for sedative hypnotics is the same as any other their substance use, and it's mostly behavioral with medication assistance if needed, and also assessing for psychiatric contributors. So referring people to the right level of treatment that they're willing to go to, that you assess, uh, do they need intensive outpatient treatment, or do they need to go to a substance use counselor? Are they willing to go to mutual self-help groups like AA or other groups or online groups like in the rooms? And are they willing to follow up with you so you can monitor them for underlying anxiety? insomnia and see if you can use non-addicting medications to keep them stable in the setting of, of cravings or uh, risk of return to use and keep them close to the fold because the risk of return to things like this is very high. And I think, Darlene, you and I both have experience with this akin to kratom where it's so accessible. And because it's advertised and marketed as a dietary supplement and, oh, well, it helps your brain and it's just an anxiety-relieving supplement, kind of like kava or GABA, and it also might be good for your muscle recovery. I mean, my patient was getting it from the gym, from his sober living. The sober living was taking them to the gym, (laughs) and that's where he was getting it. When you have really accessible substances like this, it makes them easier to rationalize their use. And so we want to talk to folks about that and kind of dispel some of the myths. Now, does it mean that all people get addicted to this. No, it's kind of like alcohol. Some people have trouble with these drugs and some people don't. Some people have trouble with alcohol and some people don't. So it's a matter of assessing the risk for your patient, seeing what they're willing to do. Do they need to go inpatient for withdrawal management? Do they Are they eligible for outpatient withdrawal management? What are they willing to do and what do they need to do for substance use treatment?
0: This is such a challenge where, like you said, it's so normalized and accessible Hopefully this can be on our radar and we can make sure that we're giving good care to our patients. Greed. Thank you. Thank Have you. Have a good day, everyone. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.